Hey, future applauders. Do you like talking about movies? Like smart movies? Dumb movies? Science fiction movies? Horror movies? Fantasy movies? Do you like listening to people talk about a movie longer than it would take you to actually watch the movie? Do you sit with your friends and rant at great length about things you're passionate about? You may be interested in Shocked and Applaud. Join us while we go through peculiar movies, traditional movies, movies that we just like, movies that we find are sort of like, huh? Do we follow somebody on social media and then they posted about a movie and we're just going to watch it now? Sure, why not? Our podcast is completely unscripted, so you're going to stumble through things with us because we stumble a lot. We're going to laugh. We're going to talk about what's problematic, but really, it comes down to talking about movies. You can visit us at shockedandapplaud.com, on Twitter at shockedapplaud, and Facebook at shockedandapplaud. We hope to see you there. I'm Bo Maddox. I'm Ashley Chancellor. And I am Stu. And this is Collateral Cinema and... The SWO Productions Stu World Order Podcast. Welcome to Collateral Cinema, the only movie podcast that matters, where we focus on good movies, bad movies, and everything else in between in the world of cinema. We are podcasting straight from somewhere in South Texas, and yes, my friends, we are a 420-friendly podcast. So whatever you have, be it dabs, blunts, bongs, or joints, smoke it if you've got it. And this is a positive vibes movie right here, so yeah, get some weed going, everybody. Hell yeah. I mean, this is a little blast from the 90s, right? Right. And uh, thank you once again for joining us, Mr. Stu from Stu World Order. Uh, I mean, what was the last? I know we did Spider-Man 3. I know. I was thinking of Spider-Man 3. I can't remember. That was the obvious one because I I will never forget making uh, me watch Spider-Man 3 again. (laughs) (laughs) I can't remember what else we've done together. Exactly. Uh, it was Scream. That's what it was. Scream. Yeah. yeah we oh, did was that. it? Okay. Shit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that, that's what it was. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is like the third time that we've had you on the podcast. You're pretty much like a collateral cinema all-star, I guess. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, along I with really the like you plot, guys. Maybe. I like the show. I love interacting with you guys. So I'm happy to be here again. Definitely. Definitely. And Stu, uh, just give everybody a little uh, refresher on uh, what you do on your podcast in case it's the first time that they're listening. Yeah, absolutely. So the podcast I have is the Stu World Order podcast where we review random comic book movies. I have a guest come on every episode. They pull three random movies from my list and then they choose the one they want to talk about. And in addition to the podcast, I have the website SWOproductions.com where we have pop culture articles, all kinds of stuff. Every weekday is something new. Excellent. And if I recall correctly, we were on your show and we did the the movie Blade. That's the one that yes. we uh, chose. Right. Yes. That yeah. was a fun time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that was a... ice skating uphill. Oh, definitely. <laughs> always. There's always motherfuckers Motherfu- ice skating uphill. Motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, let's go ahead and get into the topic at hand, which is quite possibly one of the most 90s movies ever made, honestly. I mean, this the, it, it, arguably this even kind of changed the cultural zeitgeist a little bit, like kind of halfway through the 90s a little bit. And, of course, that movie is uh, Clueless, starring, uh, of course, Alicia Silverstone, Paul Rudd, who, yeah, we'll get into Paul Rudd here because, you know, of course, he looks exactly the same nowadays, positively. <laughs> and, of course, you know, Wallace Shawn and Stacey Dash and uh, Breckenmeyer and the late Brittany Murphy. May she rest in peace. And I think this was one of her first movies, right? Uh, it could be. I know this was Paul Rudd's first role, which is... Funny, because I actually thought no. Halloween Part uh, what, 6... I th yeah, wasn't Halloween Part 6 his first I movie? thought it was, but that's actually his I second. Think, I was going to say, I think this movie came out before Halloween 6, but I think he filmed Halloween 6 first. I think Halloween 6 was in production longer, but I could be misremembering that. Huh. Okay, that wow. would make sense then, because I was told one thing, but like when you go look it up on, on Wikipedia, uh, it, it lists Clueless first. So this, this, yeah, this may be the film that came out first. And what a star-making role for him here. I mean, well, we'll get into his, his role here in a little bit. We'll get into all the characters. But, I mean, like I said, this movie pretty much just completely... It, it's one of those things that just set the zeitgeist on a different path, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember in the 90s, I mean, this movie was so eminently quotable. You just never got away from it. In the, the wake of this movie coming out, it was such a big deal and just everybody quoting this movie and talking like this movie whether you were doing it seriously or facetiously it didn't matter i mean this this movie impacted everybody i think it kind of impacted speech as i uh, as i understand it you know because a lot of these like clichés you know i think i've i've pretty much heard throughout my childhood and from what i understand that started with this movie you know, like like those those quotable lines like you were talking about, as if and whatever, you know, like that <laughs> shit I heard growing up. And also just kind of uh, bringing that uh, that Valley Girl stereotype out into the forefront and really satirizing it hardcore. Like, I mean, a lot of people really kind of fail to realize that this is very much a, a satire in a way of a very particular region of California in a very particular time, you know. Like it's it's pretty much all about that. It is, you know? but it's a it's a very it's a very loving satire. Like it's oh, very. It's almost as much in an homage as it is a satire because it is very respectfully done. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, so context. I was born in '95, the year this came out. <laughs> so, oh, I'm so old. I know. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it, man. This was actually my first viewing of it, but I, I totally vibed. Oh, man. I mean, it, it's one of those movies that's a little cross-generational, even in spite of the fact that, I mean, it was practically dated by the time it came out. You know, a lot of this cultural stuff had already kind of been burning and uh, on the back burner of the 90s for a little bit, and this just kind of brought it rushing out to the forefront, kind, kind of almost in a way how Nirvana just brought the Seattle grunge thing just right to the forefront, like almost overnight. I mean, that's kind of what it felt like here yeah. with, with Clueless. Yeah, by the time this movie had come out, Valley Girls had been, you know, a thing. Like, people talked like this, making fun of the accent and everything. But, I mean, this really kind of took that whole idea and just 
took it from like a little niche joke that people would make and just put it into the forefront of society. But it also did something really interesting with the stereotype. They kind of inverted it a little bit because, yeah, in spite of like Cher uh, Horowitz's uh, shallowness in everything. Oh, check, check, check. And in spite of Cher Horowitz's shallowness and her mindless consumerism, she's incredibly intelligent. Like, mm-hmm. to the point where, I mean, she's kind of a rhetorician a little bit. Yeah, I mean, she's very bright. I, I, it's actually funny because she's ditzy, but she's bright. Mm-hmm. She has these, like, grandiose plans, and, like, she's she, she comes up with things, and it, it's actually really funny. She's even uh, shown to be pretty competent at what she does. Yeah. You know? like, besides I mean, driving. Besides driving, yeah. <laughs> I mean, when it comes to actual the, the art of persuasion, I mean, she's pretty much got it down pat at a young age. Mm-hmm. You know? And, yeah, I mean... She's, she's pretty much on top of everything here. And even, even whenever the movie's making fun of her, like, she gives her little speech that ends with, you know, and it doesn't say RSVP on the Statue of Liberty. Like, it's a stupid speech, and she's... But, I mean, for, like, a 15-year-old high school debate class, like, right? that's a, a really good argument. It really is. You know, it's it's yeah. not half bad. I mean, of course, you know, uh, Wallace Shawn's character has his uh, criticisms. Inconceivable! You know. Inconceivable! <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, it's great that he's in this movie. But, I mean, yeah, it's, it's really... I mean, I really failed to kind of... Uh, Think of another movie that had this type of impact on culture, like in recent times, you know, like, yeah. I guess, arguably oh, in recent say- times. Yeah, it's tough to, to think of anything that's like it's hard to think of a movie that like encapsulated the decade of the 2000s or the 2010s. Maybe it's weird because like right out of the 70s, you had a picture in your head of like this was the 70s. Same thing with the 80s and the same thing with the 90s. To me, it's like. It feels like society has been kind of homogenized a bit since the 2000s. Like, aside from, you know, emo culture in the earlier 2000s, it feels like, has, has society really changed that much? Has clothing no. really changed that much since <laughs> then? So it's hard to think of a movie like that encapsulates the 2010s because it's like, what's what was really a big deal then? What's really changed since then? But you look at, like, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and everything was so flamboyant and different than what came before it and what came after it it's so easy to get like a time capsule movie like this and say like this is an era defined yeah but it's also rare to get a movie that kind of transcends that datedness you know like even though this has the 90s just written and all over it i mean it's still a very in a way it's kind of reverts back to being timeless you know because because of of the of the themes at play here, you know, which is very much about, you know, self-realization and self-actualization. I mean, you really see Cher just kind of go through this journey and it's even told through like what she's wearing and everything, you know, you kind of see her go from that really flamboyant, childish, very expensive, uh, you know, yellow blazer and everything, you know, to a a much more mature look as she, uh, as you get towards the end of the movie. By the way, it's it's very progressive. It actually is. I mean, you know, considering it's it's ninety five, right? I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> I I know, right? I mean, especially in the fact that you don't really. I was s- actually talking to my wife about that when we watched it. We were like, why, 
why doesn't Christian just tell her that he's gay? Right. He's clearly picking up that she's trying to sleep with him and he gets uncomfortable and leaves. And we just like, well, it was 1995. You probably just didn't say that so much as like nowadays it'd be no big deal. Like, oh, hey, not for me. But back in 1995, I mean, the guy was probably somewhat in the closet. Yeah, but but also there's not really any kind of gay panic trope at play here either. It it doesn't it doesn't play it up as something that's really icky or negative or anything. It's it's actually very positive about it. He is he is very obviously gay though. Very if you obviously. You don't pick up on that. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I mean, just just down to his whole kitsch and everything. You know, yeah, like yeah. he's totally into you know like old school movies and everything. Which, you know, there's plenty of straight people that are into that sort of thing. But there I mean, are. But he's he's all the tropes. That's that's what's funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is. But they're never. But he. But it's subtle. He. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, like he has all the tropes and the the James Dean thing and even a bit of his speech, but it's not it's not played for humor and it's not like turned up to 11 or anything. It's it's very realistic how he's portrayed. Yeah, it's good because it's not like hey, here's representation for the sake of it, you know. Here's here's a brilliant character interwoven into the plot who happens to be gay. Mm-hmm. And and that does play a central part in the story. Yeah, but he, for... he, he really does add something to the story overall. Like even in uh, he even plays into Sherry's like a self uh, actualization. You know, like just coming to a realization that you know there's good in all of my friends and my family and everything. You know, yeah. and you know she tries to become a better person because of them. I think know? it's interesting that she's so pure. Like the entire movie, it's like it, yeah, I mean. It, Yes, everything that she does does kind of serve her, but she d- never comes out in anything with bad intentions, I would say. I mean, she's she's very good intentioned. No, there's like I said, there's no malice to her at all. Nothing malicious no. even in her cattiness with uh, Amber. Like there's no there's it, it's coming from a place of just like, you know, not not hatred, I would say. Yeah. You know? Yeah, there's, and even in regards to the interactions with Amber, even in that case, they kind of make D a little bit more vicious towards Amber than Cher ever gets yeah, to a degree. So it kind right. of saves Cher and keeps her, like you said, pure and innocent, whereas D gets to throw kind of the more biting one-liners at, at the Amber character. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, like, yeah, I mean, and that's why she's the perfect foil for Cher in, in so many ways, you know, because she, she's kind of like that kind of like a shield for her in a way, you know, but also she can kind of bite back a little bit, you know, and, and then there's the whole relationship between uh, Dion and Murray, you know, which is a whole nother thing, you know, and it, it's portrayed kind of stereotypically in its own right, but then it kind of transcends that by the end because you see that, man, yeah, these two people really, really, really care about each other, you know, it's like there's, there's yeah. nothing even malicious like there dude that whole like spiel he, he he gives after he calls her woman and he's like i don't mean it's like something 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 you yeah. know not, but not <laughs> misogynistic you know <laughs> it's like and, and people call today's movies woke. yeah he gives his little his little progressive speech about how like well i'm calling you woman that's actually respectful and <laughs> <laughs> once again once again very progressive for 1995 yeah i mean in in all reality and it's funny even, it's, it gets even better because this is based on uh, a, a book, you know, Jane Austen's Emma, loosely adapted 
uh, which was what, 1815. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's a whole nother interesting level about like the script here is that at at this time, you didn't really see these types of adaptations of uh, other works, you know, like you kind of see them a lot more today. You know, I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's like any writer worth their merit, you know, at least try something like that somewhere along the line. But back at the back in that time, it was a very novel approach to to making a movie like this, you know, like yeah. I, either, you know, uh, Austin or even, you know, Shakespeare in many ways. Yeah, this started being a thing right around this time because this was an adapt- adaptation of Emma. Uh, Ten Things I Hate About You is an adaptation of Taming of the Shrew. And right. a lot of the teen comedies were like, let's take stuff that, you know, kids have to read in school and try to make them relatable. It was kind of a thing that this was early on in that development of, in the 90s. Yeah. I would say that that kind of culminated in the uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Claire Danes, uh, Romeo and Juliet kind of, sort of, right? You know, but we're, yeah, th- to a degree. I mean, that was obviously less of an adaptation, more of just like, this is just Romeo and Juliet, except we're giving them guns and setting <laughs> them. But it wasn't like called something else and and left up to you to be like, oh, I get it. Like, It's not like you're watching the Lion King and you're like, oh, this is Hamlet. I get it. Uh, Romeo right. and Juliet's just Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, that, that 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 that's like subtle, like a sledgehammer. You know, it's just literally the dialogue <laughs> from the play, just you know, made into a Gus. It was Gus Van Sant that made that movie, right? I, I don't remember who it was, but yeah, I mean, it kind of culminated with that. But this is what really kind of started that trend a little bit, you know. Yeah, and I would argue, you know, Lion King. That's another one right there as well. That's another one that kind of, you know brought those types of adaptations to the forefront of of cinema and everything. Yeah. Yeah. No, I actually in a lot of ways, but yeah, I I think it's interesting how, I mean, it's only a loose adaptation of the source material from what I heard. I I haven't read the original book, but my mom's an English teacher. So like, yeah. Oh, nice. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I I understand, you know, like the core concepts. Um, But uh, I think it's interesting how all of the characters are actually represented or all, all the main characters. So it's like, uh, what Cher is actually Emma herself. Yes. And like every other character from Josh to to Ty uh, to her dad to Christian, Travis, Elton, like they, they all have book counterparts. All of them do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and they have many of the same mannerisms and the same type of uh, character beats in many ways. You know, it's it's kind of I mean, it, it's almost it's like it's almost note for note, but it's just put under enough of a veneer of the 90s to just kind of uh, make it more contemporary to that time. Yeah. Yeah, you just, you're taking the scenes, you're taking the chapters, and you're changing the setting, changing the dialogue, changing the situations, but you're leaving the the skeleton of the chapters there and just retelling the story like that. So you're getting all of the beats, but like you said, under this new veneer of this more modern story that... Unless you really know Emma, you're not going to watch this and be like, oh, this is Emma. So it's subversively uh, learning, I guess, to a degree. It's similar, I think, like The Lion King, like you mentioned, you know? It's like it's Hamlet, but nobody's going to watch it and think, yeah, this is Hamlet unless you happen to have seen it before. Yeah, exactly. So it's like it's another case of like it, it may be someone's first exposure to it. You know, like I, I understand what you're saying there. It's also, I think, 
a lot more people are familiar with Hamlet than Emma, so you're much more likely to watch The Lion King and see, like, oh, this is Hamlet than this and see Emma. Like, just... Hamlet, obviously, is a much, not a much bigger deal. I don't mean to make it sound like that, but more people know Hamlet than Emma. More people have read Hamlet More people in have our seen society. The Lion King. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> also true. But here's a question. How I remember getting think- mad this, this last year when The Northman came out. I went and saw The Northman, and I came out of that movie like, that was the worst ripoff of Hamlet I've ever seen. And then I found <laughs> out that the, the story The Northman is based on with Amleth actually predates Hamlet. And I was like, all right, well, I'm an idiot then. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of those types of stories that, I mean, they, they kind of come from, uh, you know, archetypes that predate, you know, you know, mm-hmm. like, like with Beowulf. That's a good... Yeah, like Beowulf example. Beowulf. Well. Uh, what is the what is the movie with uh, Antonio Banderas? Oh, that's the Thirteenth Warrior. The Thirteenth Warrior. Yeah. yeah, I watched that for English, and that that's that's Beowulf. That's awesome. Yeah. Hell yeah, <laughs> that's right. You you tuned into this episode of Collateral Cinema to hear us talk about Clueless, but we are talking about Beowulf. Yeah, exactly. Nuts to you. You exactly. did not we're, expect we're... that whenever you started this episode, but here we are. Yes, yeah, a little, a little bit of literary analysis, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. But, Except I've actually read Beowulf, so I haven't read Emma. Yeah. <laughs> but here's here's the question I wanted to put forth: Like, how does this type of adaptation compare to the type of adaptations that we have nowadays? I mean. A lot of adaptations nowadays get a lot of criticisms, like especially if it's of different uh, medium, visual mediums, you know, like a good example is like video games and anime and whatnot. Like, how do you, how do you think uh, those types of adaptations work nowadays and how do they compare to this? I mean, the Netflix live action an- adaptation of an anime is, is usually like mid or worse. Yeah, roughly. Or sometimes know. okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think people are generally more forgiving. Like if you're taking a modern property and then doing a reimagining of that, it always feels to at least some people a little unnecessary, but because we haven't proven that say death note is timeless. So whenever Netflix says like, we're going to do our own death note, we as a society are like, well, a, we still have a death note over here and B, we don't know if in 200 years, people are still going to care about death note, but like, I hope they've already proven that Shakespeare and Jane Austen and, and James and John Milton and what have you, these are all timeless works of art that, you know, we as a society have decided. And whenever you get, the people who need to read those stories may not necessarily want to. Like, you're aiming this movie at high school kids who probably didn't want to read a Jane Austen novel, but if you give them this movie, they want to see this. So, like, who's a Death Note adaptation for that the original Death Note already isn't just for? Whereas this movie is actually for a new audience. And you have to remember that an anime like Death Note is usually an adaptation of a manga, so it's already an adaptation of... At, at of its core, it's an adaptation of an adaptation. <laughs> that that's kind of where where we're at right now. It's it's kind of get becoming almost like meta adaptation in a way. Right, right, definitely, definitely, yeah. But uh, yeah, I think Clueless works because even without that context, right? Like, I can't watch the live action Death Note and think of you know this is not you know it is Death Note, right? just not done nearly as well, right? But this this is something entirely different. It has its own identity. Yes, definitely. You know what kind of works? I kind of 
I want I want to mention something here because this has actually been really relevant recently. I am doing for the website, I'm doing a review of every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which oh. I'd never watched before. Oh, Another nice. favorite of my wife's, I've been watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer with her. She keeps getting mad at me because as we're watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I'm just looking her, looking at her and going, you know this is Spider-Man, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is just... This is just Joss Whedon Red Spider-Man was like, I'm going to make this for girls and about vampires. And she gets so <laughs> mad whenever I point out every single beat in Buffy the Vampire Slayer and like, yeah, this happened to Peter Parker. Or like, this is just like, this is all about like, oh, he can't go on dates because he has responsibility. She gets so mad at me. But it's like, yeah, you can make good adaptations of modern things, but... Yeah, making like a Death Note adaptation and just calling it Death Note. Like, no, make something different and just base it on Death Note. Like, just don't make the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. And see, that's where Clueless works, is it's not the same thing. It's something different. It's something that, you know, just it, its use of uh, the 90s as an aesthetic, as well as being an adaptation of him, as well as just being genuinely very funny and well-written, actually. Oh, man, yeah, let's talk about just the script. I mean, so much quotable dialogue in this movie, you know, from the, you know, there's no RV, RSVP on the uh, <laughs> Statue of Liberty or whatever and all that shit, you know? It's like, yeah, this was a great script, man. And and just just the casting just fits it so well. Yeah, I, that's what the big deal about this movie is. Like, Emma is Emma, and we've talked a lot about it being an adaptation. This movie succeeds because this movie is genuinely amazing. Like, the acting is phenomenal. The, the story is genuinely funny. It's odd because the storytelling conventions nowadays are different because you watch this, and they're weird little scenes like in between non sequitur type scenes where like something happens and then all of a sudden Cher's talking about how boys dress in the 90s and then we're kind of back to the plot so it feels weird kind of watching it now but it still works because the jokes are genuinely funny the characterization really works the situations feel the stakes feel relatable you actually care about what's going on very yeah. much very much so i mean and, and just the way that every character is just, you know, it feels like someone that you've known before, you know? Yes. Like, like a good example is Ty, played by the late, great Brittany Murphy. May she rest in peace. Oh, yeah. Much, I just much looked, loved her. I just looked that up and I found out she died. That's yeah. Oh, she died, year, she died years ago. Yes. She's great. Yeah. She's so brilliant in this yeah. movie. And like, it, it's very sad how she went, man. Pretty aw. much in front of her husband. It was very sad. Very oh, terrible. Jesus but Christ. Here she got her start and... Playing Ty, who to me was just every teenager in the '90s that I knew, pretty much. Like she, she was the most relatable <laughs> person. Like wearing the flannel and the band shirt and asking, you know, where the herbal refreshment is at. And isn't she <laughs> the only character that is actually dressing like genuinely '90s? Like everything else is just like. <laughs> yeah, that's it, ironically enough. That's like the most contemporary uh, actual style to, to this movie that there is in the entire film, honestly, to its time period. Yeah, I think she's like, she's the audience surrogate for this movie. Like, if you don't actually live in this part of California, if you don't live in, in you know, around Los Angeles, the Valley, you don't have this lifestyle. She's the in character for who, like, she represents your confusion about what's going on. And just like you start to love this movie and love these characters, she becomes adapted to everything going on around her. 
Yes. And that makes a lot of sense given that it's very much indicated that she's not even from California. She kind of has a Jersey accent to her, if I'm not mistaken. Almost. She does. She has a very pronounced Jersey accent. So she, she's very much an outsider to this whole culture in general, very much like the audience was at this time, you know, unless you lived in that region. Yeah. Let me, I wanted to say something here because this is something I've brought up so many times, especially in podcasting is I'll talk about like actors who, after they had an era or maybe even one particular role that like, you can't believe just didn't blow up. I don't know how every single movie after this one didn't star Alicia Silverstone. She's a supernova in this. And I don't know how she didn't become the biggest star in the universe after this. It felt like she did this and then she did Batman and Robin and then she just kind of disappeared. I know. And that's not cool because she's amazing in this. Her comic timing, her line delivery is brilliant. I almost wish she would have been in awards contention for this movie because this is almost an award. This is pretty much an award winning performance from her. Oh yeah. Like absolutely. Just like even all the way down to the narration. I mean, she, she puts so much of uh, Cher's character into the narration that we're really getting like, she really just encapsulates you know, that Valley Girl stereotype and whatnot and everything, you know? Well, this movie is so character-driven. I mean, that's kind of the point. It's like every character fits an archetype. And I, I think that, that that works because they really take those archetypes and, and they make them really hilarious. I mean, just some of the lines that come out of these characters. I mean, whenever you watch uh, Travis, you know, the, yeah, the Breck, stoner character. Breck and Meyer. <laughs> yeah, good old, old Breck and Meyer, who does a lot of robot chicken nowadays. Oh, really? But, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he was phenomenal in this role and also another one of the more relatable characters to me for obvious reasons. Because, I, I mean, we all, we all knew the stoner kids back in the day, even if you didn't really do that sort of thing, you know? Like, you, you all know at least a few of the stoner kids, and they were very much like that, you know, skating, listening to, like, alternative music. And, and they're like, always whatnot. cool as fuck. Always. Oh, <laughs> always, dude. Dude, I hung out with the skaters in middle school, so, like, I get it. Like, they're always cool as fuck. And, um, I mean, I, I, I sort of, that, that's the clique that I fell into was the skater clique, actually. Yeah. Um. Which is funny because you look at a movie like this, which does clicks, and you look at a movie like Mean Girls, which does clicks. And and, and it's kind of interesting how you can juxtapose, you know, the way that the, that the high school system works, the infrastructure of, like, the social... Uh, the social hierarchy. Hierarchy, yes. yes. I mean, that is definitely one of the themes of this movie. It's all about social hierarchy and social standing as well and how... You know, the character's motivations are related to that and everything, especially Cher. Yeah. You know, I mean, it even goes down to how she dresses. And, and you know, like she, uh, from what I understand, Alicia Silverstone went through like 61 costume changes in this movie. <laughs> 61 costume changes. And, really? and it makes sense because <laughs> it, it really is a form of visual storytelling. You know, like I said earlier, I mean, it really shows her journey from being just kind of this really shallow, naive, you know, you know, albeit, you know, gold hearted person, yeah. you know, and then she just actually grows up and she starts to realize that she needs to actually, you know, be there for others and whatnot and actually try to try to be a net positive for the world. 
yeah. you know? And, and that's why, I mean, in many ways, Cher becomes a little bit of a role model for all of us in that sense. Yeah, you know? I, get, I, I dig that. Yeah. It's weird because she starts the movie off and she's both a good person and really smart. And she's also successful. So you figure, like, where does she have to go as a character? And it's more like when she starts off, these are all disparate elements. Like, she's good and also she's smart and also she's successful. It's like she has the pieces, but she hasn't put them all together and yeah. figured out how to like become this complete person where you're, you use your goodness to enhance your smartness, to get your success to everybody else around you and share what you have with everyone else. So it's more like they start this character off. She has all the pieces and then she just puts it together as she goes. Yeah, definitely. It, it, it is a really one of the better character arcs of, you know, any movie in the 90s, to tell the truth. I mean, it's one of my favorite character arcs ever, you yeah. know, because I mean, like, like you said, just that pure heartedness and she just really wants to be better, you know. Right. But I mean, I think that there's some other elements to her character that are interesting. Like one thing that I do want to point out is, you know, especially being uh uh, a spec myself on the asexual spectrum of mainly demisexual it's like she very much has the characteristics of a demisexual person you know like she's very much focused on the on the people in her life more than you know like any type of carnal uh interests you know like i can see that yeah like like she knows uh, she knows about sex she understands sex as an idea but she's she obviously is not just out there trying to be like that, you know? Yeah, I mean, and, and it, it seems like at that part in the movie where, like, she's open to, to try it with Christian, but, yeah. you, like, you feel like it's not... I understand what you mean. Like, it's not as, as big of a deal well, for her as just forming that connection seems to be, you Exactly. Know? I mean, well, the thing with Christian is that she was very much, you know, kind of infatuated with the aesthetic of Christian, right. you know? I think she says that, doesn't she? It, very much so, yeah. She pretty much admits <laughs> it. It's pretty much, you know, like, he's, he's purdy. So she's just like, ah. so, and, and I've experienced that before as a demisexual where, I mean, there's just like some people where I'm just like, oh, wow, you're very pretty. But it's just like, I, I don't want to like pursue anything like that. Well, yeah, I mean, you and I will be watching movies like Girls, Guns, and G-Strings. And <laughs> like, we'll be, <laughs> you'll be like, hey, Fuck yeah, it's some titties. Like you, you understand the yeah. the the, the important. Like like you, you get it, but like I understand. Like I get it's, you. It's not. Yeah, it's not my primary form of attraction. It's not Cher's primary form of attraction either, which is kind of interesting because of how of her perceived shallowness at the beginning. You know, but also you know the whole aesthetic attraction thing that kind of plays into it as well. So okay. Like right now, for example, the Hadians need to come to America. But some people are all, what about the strain on our resources? And it's like, when I had this garden party for my father's birthday, right? People came that like did not RSVP. So I was like totally bugging. I had to haul ass to the kitchen, squish in extra place settings, and like people were on mismatched chairs and all. But by the end of the day, it was like the more the merrier. And so if the government could just get to the kitchen, rearrange some things, we could certainly party with the Hadians. Wow. You guys talk like grown-ups. 
Oh, well, this is a really good school. Mr. Hall was way harsh. He gave me a C minus. <laughs> well, he gave me a C, which drags down my entire average. Hello? There was a stop sign. I totally paused. You tried driving in platforms. Oh, should I write them a note? Cher's got attitude about high school boys. It's a personal choice every woman has got to make for themselves. Cher's saving herself for Luke Perry. Cher, you're a virgin? I mean, I'm not prude. I'm just highly selective. I mean, you see how picky I am about my shoes, and they only go on my feet. Nice stems. Where balls fly at my nose. Well, there goes your social life. I'm gonna be a supermodel. And yeah, that's why I kind of wanted to bring up that element of her character. I mean, because it just really plays into how her relationships play out throughout the film. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. Like. Like. Like all of her relationships throughout the film. Right. And it's interesting because as a matchmaker she's right about some things like she gets uh wallace sean and and the other teacher together yeah right and and that's good and once she realizes that paul rudd her ex-stepbrother is her like one true love like she gets that together you know yeah it it pretty much kind of just turns on like that you know like literally that that moment where she realizes that and the fountain comes on which the fountain comes on yeah the the fountain comes on and (laughs) it actually has uh, uh, some colors of the demi flag there so i mean yeah yeah she realizes oh my god i'm in love with him and i want to be with him it's like yeah it can literally kind of just turn on like that you know but we could also just kind of literally not feel anything like that you know it's just Mm -hmm. Could be a crapshoot, but I mean, it does definitely depend on you know how close you are to that particular person, you know. And of course, you know, Cher, she was, uh, you know, with Paul Rudd's character. I mean, they, they were almost brother and sister, step brother and stepsister. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's a little bit weird, but it's like at the end of it, it's like, no, nah, it's okay. The characters work. They're not. There's, they're not they're not related by blood and they're not even related by marriage anymore. So whatever, I, I'll give it a pass. I mean, it's Paul Rudd, okay? <laughs> yeah. I'd go for it's, it too, honestly. Oh yeah, it's, yeah. To be fair, it's that's... Paul Rudd and Alicia Silverstone. These are very pretty people and they belong together. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> the, thing that, absolutely. The thing that threw me watching it is, and I don't think I ever noticed it watching it before, is her dad is like completely cool with the idea. Like he thinks it's adorable whenever he first picks up on it, like well before Josh or Cher do, he kind of gives this like grin and everything. And it's just like, I think it's weird that you're so cool with it. 
Like me as an audience member, sure. Like it'll work for me. Like I, I have no problem with these two characters ending up together, but I think it's weird that the dad is okay with it. Right? Okay. I thought the exact same thing. That, 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 that's really funny. But I do like her dad. Uh, let's see. It's, oh, I uh, love her dad. Dan I, I think for the for the first time ever watching this movie, I, I realized, like, oh, her dad's my favorite character now that I'm an old man, too. Oh, totally, man. <laughs> like, like, just that moment where he tells Ty, get the hell out of my chair. It's just like, <laughs> like, uh, and that's his first or her first impression of him. But it's like, that's so hilarious. He's a good, he's a fun character for me because I'm not, I'm not old, but I'm a dad. So, like, yeah, I can kind of see myself there, you know, 20 years from now, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. He's a good character because he's, I mean, A, he's hilarious throughout the movie, especially the older you get and you're seeing his character and he's less of a background like character that's just there out of necessity and more of somebody who's really adding a lot to the movie. But you realize too, like he has this curmudgeonly, I'm old, rich, and I, I don't have to take anybody's crap, but he's also really caring he's another character in this movie that has depth and he's not just the stereotype that he seems to be because you see his interactions with josh and you see his interactions with Cher, and like he genuinely loves these kids yes he does and i actually really appreciated that it's like most of the characters in this movie are honestly wholesome very much so yeah another another good example uh wallace Shawn's character miss what was his name mr Mr. I don't know Wallace Shawn. I forget his name. The other teacher's name was Miss Geist, but I can't Ms. Geist, remember his yeah. name. Mr. Hall. Mr. Hall and Miss Geist. That is the most adorable thing yes! in the world. And I would argue that you know the reason that Cher was successful there was that she was kind of viewing that through a dimmy lens. You know, she was she saw that there could be a connection there, and that can kind of explain why her attempt to you know, hook up Ty with Elton kind of fell through because it felt like she was trying to, you know, view it from a sexual lens there, and that just didn't work. It wasn't compatible. Yeah, and, and like, you, we, the audience, pick up on Travis and Ty very quickly. Very quickly. So it's like, you know, you, you, you kind of realize that, you know, she's not... She, she, this is not a good match. And she's trying to like force something that isn't right, right? Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's because she's, she just doesn't really pick up on the, uh, right. How allosexuals kind of really connect like that. Exactly. Know? And it's not, again, like there's no, it, it's weird how it's like she's judging Travis's character, for instance, but it, it, it's in a way that like as much as that can be pure, it is. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Somehow it comes across from her with like good intentions. But it, it's very much also going back to the social stratosphere of the of the school and everything. You know, he, he's a Lodi, you know, he's just, he's the stoner, yeah. you know, and they have their place. But then eventually, I mean, there's that one scene near the end where, you know, Cher is a, Cher is uh, volunteering for the Pismo Beach uh, uh, charity drive and everything. And, and uh, Travis brings all of his bongs in there to kind of <laughs> give it up because he got into a 12-step program and started to take his <laughs> skating career a little more seriously. And that right there is like one of my favorite interactions of the movie. You know, because it shows, like, you know, not only did Cher progress, but also, you know, Travis progressed as a character as well. Like, all the characters kind of have their own progression to them. Yeah. You know? And that's what's so fascinating about this movie to me. 
you know? It's like they really do give their characters some very satisfying arcs. Yeah. Yeah, no, all of them. I mean, even by the end of it, like, the closest thing you can call to an antagonist, which is Amber. Yeah. You know, it's like, you, you really don't, you can't hate her. She's just like the other teen in this movie that has her own, you know... Yeah, I mean, in a way, she's she's kind of the antithesis to share a little bit. Yeah, you know? and she has her own identity, and it's like, uh, like there's just this rivalry thing going on. But there's no, again, like it's not malicious. Yeah, but also going back to the whole use of costuming as a storytelling device. I mean, even Amber's uh, character, she she kind of has her own visual character arc through her dress and everything, yeah. like. She encapsulates all kinds of different styles, you know? Like, there, there's even a moment where she kind of has a little bit of a Cindy Lauper thing going, kind of, sort of. <laughs> Almost like a thing that was, uh, like, like she was she was hot riding the retro wave, you know, before that was a thing. So Yeah, that's true. I always kind of looked at Amber in this movie as she's like the cautionary tale. She's, she's who Cher would become if Cher didn't have self-awareness. Definitely. Very much so. Yeah, self-awareness is not one of Amber's strong suits. Right. It, it's very obvious. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, e even then, she's still kind of... I mean, she, she's still also a really good foil for Cher, you know, especially, yeah. like, in, that in the first debate scene. Like, she's just like, how am I supposed to argue against that? That doesn't even make sense. I don't know. It's it's just like a Harry and Draco thing. Kind of, sort of. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Or that dynamic that was going on with, with uh, Wednesday and that rival character in the Jen Ortega series. Oh, yeah. yeah I don't know. Yeah. We watched a few episodes of that, but I haven't started it from, like, the beginning, so I don't know, like, the whole context. But, like, I've seen that, like, that scene. Like, I think I think it, it's, like, yeah, that, that that's kind of a good, rep that's kind of a good, like, analog. And I, I, I will say that going to, back to Wednesday, I do love the whole thing with uh, Wednesday and uh, Enid. That's really, I love that. Enid, okay. That's the yeah. friend, right? The friend, right? The, the really right. colorful friend. Okay. Yeah, she, that, that's really good. I, I, that, that's a very adorable series. I, I recommend it. That's a series I want to start, yeah. Yeah, good. definitely. <laughs> I caught the first couple of episodes, like, just this past week when we were staying with friends over New Year's. And so I'm like... Technically, I'm like four episodes in, and even those, I think I missed some chunks of them. But yeah, it's really good, and I'm gonna watch anything Jenna Ortega is in. So, oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I are you hyped for the new Scream? That's gonna be awesome, right? Yeah, you know what? I I did not think Scream Five was going to be nearly as good as I thought it was. I ended up really enjoying Scream Five, so I'm here for this kind of soft rebooting with these new characters. I I, I kind of want to see where it goes now. Definitely, yeah, I get that. <laughs> Especially having the balls to kill David Arquette's character. Yeah, you know? I, yeah. So I have a really interesting history with that franchise. So, like, I've seen the original. We talked about it. You know, we did an episode on it, and then I've seen. The newest one, the and that's it. I've seen Scream One and Scream Five, and so I haven't without the context of two through four. <laughs> For my money, those are the two best ones. They are the yeah. best ones, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Two <laughs> two is okay. Three and four are both pretty bad. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. I, I I thought that Scream Two was a lot of fun. Yeah, Scream Two's still good. It just kind of. It lost the charm that the first Scream had because it 
became a franchise movie instead of like, you know, lampooning tropes and everything. Yeah. So it kind of lost its way a bit because it just became more of like, oh, now we're just going to make a bunch of these like every horror series does. Yeah, definitely. It lost a little bit in that translation, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. But going back to Clueless, I guess we can go ahead and start getting into some final thoughts about this movie. I mean, I kind of feel like we've only scratched the surface because this is actually a pretty complex movie, to tell the truth. Yeah. There's a lot of layers to it, a lot of layers to all the different characters. Like, like we just barely got into, you know, the Mr. Hall and Mrs. Geist's relationship, which yeah, that is the most wholesome thing in the entire movie. It's so yes, sweet. 100%. It's like... I mean, who who else? You know, like like that that wedding scene at the end. You know. Oh yeah, yeah, like, yeah. And then she catches the bouquet because, and she knows she's gonna catch it too. Oh, she's determined to catch it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no. All, like all three of the boyfriends are sitting there, and they're just like, oh, they're already they're already, already planning, planning our, our marriages, our weddings. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my god. <laughs> that, that that's a great way to in in that in that movie, honestly, with, yeah. with, with the wedding between Miss Geis and Miss Hall. Mr. Hall and this guy, excuse me. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's a, a lot of fun. I, I, I like that. But yeah, let's get into final thoughts on this movie. We'll go ahead and start with Stu. Uh, I just really like this movie a, a great deal. I think it's one of the best coming of age movies ever. It's arguably the best like time capsule movie ever, where it's just like, here's an era in a bottle. Like, I don't know that any movie has ever done that any better. It's, it's pretty much like what this or fast times at Ridgemont high, I would say, but I, I think it's great. I think it's one of those movies. If I extrapolated all of my favorite movies out to like my top 50, it's in there. It's definitely a top 50 movie for me. I get a huge kick out of it. I think it's hilarious. Uh, Alicia Silverstone is just like I said, she's a supernova in this. I don't know how she didn't blow up any bigger, but yeah, I'm just, I'm a huge fan of this. I will watch this movie all the time. This is kind of like, uh, probably not rated as highly, but it's like the princess bride for me. It's any time I can watch this movie, I'm going to watch this movie. Which is interesting given that Wallace Shawn is in both movies. Yes. Right. <laughs> Wallace Shawn makes the best movies. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He, he always just knocks it out of the park in any movie he's in. Oh yeah. He, even in Southland Tales, as weird as that movie was, he was one of the better parts of that movie. So, but Ash, what are your final thoughts? Okay, so yeah, again, viewing this for the first time, but I I actually kind of get the same vibe that I would get from, say, like something I've watched throughout my childhood, like The Princess Bride, like you mentioned. Uh, so I Married an Axe Murderer. Yeah. <laughs> Weird comparisons, but like, hear me out, all right? There's just sort of a vibe. It's it's comfy. It's, it's warm. I'm laughing every like minute of it. Yeah. Like, just every line that comes out of these characters' mouths, uh, I'm getting invested in these characters. I'm getting invested in the story. Um, and I'm just having a good time. And, and maybe that also had something to do with having three beers and being high as fuck. Oh, of course. I mean, that always helps. <laughs> I mean, the, I mean, needless to say. But, yeah, no, the, the, you know, it's, it's a good fucking time. And so I highly recommend it that way, actually. Yeah, <laughs> especially the fact that it's a very easy movie to find nowadays. You can find it easily on DVD, like almost anywhere, yeah. like, uh, even on certain compilations. But my final thoughts are 
like I said, this is a very, one of those movies that's actually kind of formative for me, you know, kind of like Ghostbusters or something like that. It, it, it defined a very particular part of my, uh, my growing up, you was know? It, was it formative of your sexuality, Bo? I don't know about that. I mean, I didn't even know what, I, I mean, I, I kind of knew that I was uh, leaning ace, you know, early on, you know, but I didn't really know what to really call what that's that fair. was, you know? I mean, but now we, we have the term for that, demisexual. So, yeah. I mean, and now in retrospect, yeah, Cher is very much uh, an influence there probably. But, yeah, I mean, this is like one of the best scripts ever made, I think. I mean, just the dialogue and the characterization. And, you know, I mean, the, the direction by Amy, like I think it was Hinkle, Hinkling or something like that, right? A Amy? Um, I thought it was like Weatherling or something. I tagged it on Instagram when I promoted this episode. Hold on. Amy Heckerling. Heckerling. On Twitter. Amy Heckerling. Heckerling. Yes. Heckerling. Yeah. You combine like, what I, you thought it was with what I thought it was. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> but she is actually very masterful in her direction here and in her, her choices, even for how the colors kind of pop, you know, like even, even some of the colors in the background in certain scenes is kind of muted just so the characters can really pop on screen and everything, you know? And, and then, like we said, the cultural impact of this movie, you know, going forward, I mean, it was monumental. I mean, it, it pretty much defined its era. And like Stu said, it remains more definitive of its era than any other type of time capsule movie out there. Like, like, like a good time capsule movie for me, you know, weirdly enough, would be something like The Goonies a little bit. Okay, you that know, too. Let me add that yeah. to the list that I spoke of earlier. Yeah, that's very much a time capsule <laughs> movie for me that's very emblematic of that particular period of the 80s, you know? You know, I mean, I was an 80s baby, so, you yeah. know, and a 90s kid. So, like, grew up, grew up in the, like, was a kid in the 80s, like, became a teenager in the 90s, pretty much. Yeah. So... Like, I don't get that because I grew I, I was born in the 90s and I don't really remember it, but yeah, all of the movies. It's, it's definitely one of those. That I've seen that you mentioned. It's you know, definitely yeah. one of those things where you just really had to, to be there, you know? Yeah. You had to be there to know that. Too. Like, especially if you, you know, were involved in mall culture in any way, like going to yeah. a mall. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, man, I miss mall culture. Like, I don't know if uh, you go on YouTube and watch any of those uh, dead mall uh, urban urbex videos. But it's like, man, there's a there's a very big one that's like five minutes from me. It's called Century Three Mall. When it opened in like the late 70s, it was the biggest mall in America. Oh, and it's, yeah. It, it's completely empty and caving in on itself. Oof. But yeah, Oof. I, I'm sure we could probably find some video of it somewhere on YouTube. I oh, mean, yeah. No, there's definitely videos of, uh, you know, guys walking through Century Three Mall and filming and. Yeah. Shooting things. Yeah. yeah. That, that's totally kind of like one, one of my favorite YouTube topics is, you know, urbex and uh, abandoned dead malls and everything. Like, I think that there's at least one somewhere in San Antonio that, I mean, they have a, they still have a few vendors there, but I mean, they don't have their anchors there. And I mean, the food court's pretty much empty. Yeah. It, it, it's just kind of fascinating to explore something like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. When, when Century Three Mall was dying before it completely, they had to shut it down because, like, something happened and it was very unsafe and somebody got hurt. But the, the couple of years where it was dying, like you said, it was fascinating just going there. Like there was a big comic book store in there and not much else, but a big comic book store. And I went to century three mall 
on Black Friday and there was nobody there. And it's just like, man, I could never have convinced like 17 year old me that this would be a possibility. I know (laughs) it's it's kind of surreal in a way, you know, because I mean, especially in the 90s, so many of us kind of were part of that culture, you know, like, I mean, it was very much a social hub. I mean, you even went there to watch your movies. Yeah. You know, but I mean, yeah, seeing that particular part of the culture, you know, also represented here. I mean, it, it just takes me back, you know, and, and it's, it's just a great movie to kind of just get into that vibe and just, you know, just think about, you know, the simpler times. Yeah. You know, very much like the Goonies, you know, with, with the 80s. I, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, those are our thoughts and that's our discussion on Clueless. Uh, Stu, where can our listeners find the SWO podcast? Uh, the Stu World Order podcast you can find on any podcast player. The website again is swoproductions.com. Uh, Twitter, Instagram at the S, uh, Twitter, Instagram at SWO Productions. Pretty easy to find anywhere. So, yep, that's where you'll find us. Definitely awesome. And Ash, uh, what's going on with Collateral Gaming? Well, this month we are talking about It Takes Two. That's going to be our numbered episode for the month. I've never played it before, but I'm going to play it. Uh, I think with my uh, my co-host and buddy Zach, because uh, it does actually, in fact, take two. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to be our numbered episode for the month. And then uh, actually, I think sometime uh, at the end of this week, as of the time of recording this, we should be doing our fighting games episode, the arcade game mega review, which oh, is going to serve yeah. as our like anniversary special this year, uh, this season. So um, yeah, we're going to talk about uh, fighting games. A few seasons ago, we did light gun shooters and uh, now we're just going to get into fighting games. I mean, I've got this like street fighter arcade cabinet that my ex-wife got me for Christmas years ago and we've been playing a ton of fighting games every time we hang out, so it's gonna. Yeah, be, and I, we're gonna go to a local arcade maybe and check out every fighting game that's there. I hope that they have some SNK Neo Geo machines because those are like <laughs> the best w- way to play fighters, man. Like, I mean, they they just had fighting games out the ass for that platform. <laughs> I love it, and, and I mean, we'll get into the history of fighting games a little bit, you know, just kind of go over, you know, like how what it was like in the '90s, because I mean, it's very much very a '90s thing. You know, like very much so very much. It really gained steam in the 90s. So. So, yeah, look for that. And with Collateral Cinema, our next episode, we are going to be actually diving into video game movies again. We're going to be talking about Silent Hill and we're also going to be doing a collaboration with Collateral Gaming where we're also going to do what, what episodes are we going to do on the Collateral Gaming side? Yeah, just to outline that, the Silent Hill episode with Collateral Cinema is going to be a collaboration special, and then we're also going to be doing on the uh, bonus round this month uh, a uh, look at Silent Hill 1 and Silent Hill Homecoming. So kind of the uh, dichotomy of Silent Hill, yeah, so to speak. You know, it's <laughs> like, 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 like the, du- the duality of Silent Hill, I should say. The good and the bad. And, and that's going to be a lot of fun. So yeah, we're going to be kind of uh, collabing on that. And I think, uh, what are we doing this month on the director's cut of Collateral Cinema? On the director's cut? I think we were talking about either doing another movie recommendations episode, but you were also talking about doing something with Robert. Yeah, I would like to kind of revisit an idea that we had back in the day of uh, Slashers in the Big City. Yeah. You know, uh, doing a review of uh, Jason Takes Manhattan and uh, Leprechaun in Vegas. 
You know, both both of them really great movies. Honestly, I, I, I think <laughs> they're hilarious movies, to tell the truth. Like especially Jason Takes Manhattan. That's actually kind of that that was actually one of my introductions to uh, Friday the Thirteenth was the first movie, and then Jason Takes Manhattan. I I kind of went straight there. So you were talking about nice. something on Friday the Thirteenth. When's the next one of those? Uh, tomorrow. Right now. <laughs> right now. Yeah. Right it's, now. I was gonna say t- twenty three minutes ago. Yeah, yeah. It, it is Friday. Well, the 13th. on my time zone, anyway. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. So you. Okay, I'm pulling up the chat, the group chat right now, and you mentioned Bloody Murder one and two on oh, the director's cut okay. for Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah, Bloody Murder one and two. There we go. Kind of because because they kind of have a uh, dude with a hockey mask on the cover of those, so it's I guess Friday adjacent. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I'm just reading off of that. So if we don't do that, we might do one of the the other ideas for director's cut this month. But you know, like 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 always with that, we'll sort of wing it. Yeah, yeah we we kind of wing it with the the, the director's cut episodes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, thank you for joining us on this episode. Uh, you can find Collateral Cinema and Collateral Gaming on uh, all your favorite podcast apps. We usually list them in the show notes. I mean, they're you know the usual suspects: Apple Podcasts, Google, uh, you know YouTube, iHeartRadio, and all that. Yeah. But also check us out on Good Pods, where you can follow us and uh, get a direct feed to our episodes. And also, you can help rate our episodes and help us uh, climb the uh, podcasting charts there. So. Check us out there and also uh, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and on Podchaser. We also have a Patreon. Yes, we so have. So you a- can check out uh, exclusive uh, movie link, our full-length movie commentaries. Uh, and on the Collateral Gaming side, we have Let's Play video game commentaries. So, uh, yeah, a lot of content if you do decide to donate either one or five dollars. And we should be getting some type of merchandise together where maybe we can, like, send a sticker or something to, like, the $1 uh, tier uh, patrons or something like that. Yeah. Maybe, and maybe something additional uh, for the $5 tier. You know, so, yeah, look for that, ladies and gentlemen. And thank you, once again, thank you for joining us. And once again, thank you to Stu for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Excellent. Yeah. yeah, and you're you're welcome on anytime, bro. This this was a good vibe. Oh, dev- definitely. Yeah. Yeah, anytime. I always like talking to you guys, so definitely. Thank you. All right, <laughs> all right. Well, with that said, I'm Bo Maddox, and I'm Ashley Chancellor, and I am Stu, and this was Collateral Cinema. Take care, everybody. We are out. As if. As if. Whatever. <laughs>
is a collateral media podcast all music and movie clips are owned by the respective creators and are used for educational purposes only please don't sue us we're poor